Acts chapter 13. Just by way of recap, it says in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and a bunch of other guys, and then Saul. And while they were, verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so we have the leaders of the church gathering, fasting, praying, seeking God, and the Holy Spirit speaks through their gifting and says, hey, these two guys, go send them for the work which I have called them. And what is interesting about chapter 13 on, many people call this part of uh, Acts the the uh, the Acts of Paul, because now it focuses, it shifts off of Peter and Jerusalem, and now it's on Paul and his work to the Gentiles, getting out of their comfort zone, going to places they've never gone before, speaking the Word of God in, in various places that need to happen. It's interesting that uh, Susie brought up today, today's prayer for the persecuted church. Right after service today, we'll be spending some time praying, and that'll be a large part of it, so I encourage you to stay afterwards to pray for uh, those People groups that are in faraway places that are being persecuted, the missionaries and all those types of people that uh, are our brothers and sisters and we need to lift up. But it says, so the two of them, and if you could put the map up there for a second, it says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. Uh, and so uh, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And so they're cruising down to Salamis and they're going to go over to Paphos there on Cyprus. And this is their journey that we're reading about, the first missionary journey of Paul. So we're going to be reading about these places. And today we're going to cruise up to Galatia. And that is where the book of Galatians was written to that area. Kind of like saying the book to Walla Walla County, you know, and it includes all the cities within. And so... When they were there, they ran into a sorcerer in Paphos there named Bar-Jesus, and he was a false prophet. And then Paul, he let him know what was going on, and he was blind, and immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped around seeking to lead someone by his hand. And when the proconsul, the leader there, saw what had happened, verse 12, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And the pattern over and over in the book of Acts is God penetrating men, Women in different cultures, no matter where it is, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has come to free us from our sins and our bondage. And every time these men of God, these women of God, they step out and they start to answer the call, there's opposition. There's political opposition. There's spiritual opposition. There's opposition from within the church. There's hypocrisy. There's all these things happening. And so how, why is it so hard to get up and go to church? Ding. Me too. <laughs> why is it hard to share with that neighbor across the street? We can think of a thousand excuses why not to do it. Why is it hard to love the unlovely? Why is it hard to share the light and the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on. The enemy is using all of these things that we see, and Paul will later on tell us, we do not fight against those things we see. We fight against the things we do not see. Principalities, dark, yeah, principalities and rulers of various kinds, as ranks of demons and what have you. That's where the real fight is. And so when you see things like ISIS and ISIL going on and, and the, the perversion that's going on in America and all these other things, 
and we want to go and we want to just stop the action, there is a, there's a spiritual thing going on behind that. The enemy influencing carnal, unregenerate, darkened men to do his will. Case in point, breaking into my van when I prayed for you guys last week, that was not nice. It comes down to real practical stuff. I thought you'd find it funny. <laughs> oh no, Stephen. <laughs> yes. And so, but nevertheless, this, this leader on Crete, this proconsul, came to the Lord and he believed in the teaching about the Lord. Now, moving on, verse 13, which is where we're picking up this week, says From Paphos, Paul and his companions, they sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, remember John, John Mark, the author of Mark? That is Barnabas' nephew. Barnabas is from Crete, as, we, as you read in chapter 4, verse 36. He's from Crete. And so as soon as they're done with Crete on the missionary journey, what does young John Mark want to do? Yeah, I'm kind of done. I want to go home now. I got to visit my relatives, and I'm reading into that, but I think that's exactly what's going on. I want, to, I want to visit my relatives, and as soon as they were done with that, he took off. This is later going to cause a big problem with Paul. If you flip over to chapter 5, verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas let, uh, he said, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John because they're going to Crete again. That's my guess. And also called Mark with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, which we're reading about right now, and had not committed with them in the work. And we'll talk about disagreements within the body of Christ. That's always fun. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Here are two amazing spiritual giants in the church disagreeing and going separate ways. What do you do with that? We'll get there in chapter 5. But that's what happened here. There was a, a separation, but uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, excuse me. And so, uh, verse 14, it says, From Perga they went to uh, Poseidon Antioch. Some of you, your, your Bibles will just say Antioch. They're, they're, they kind of um, try to distinguish by calling it this uh, Pisidian Antioch, and that's in Galatia. And so on the Sabbath, they're in the city, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement or exhortation for the people, please speak. And so if you remember back in Luke chapter 4, do you remember when Jesus entered Nazareth, his hometown? He opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read it. He's reading from one of the prophets. The Law and the Prophets. The Law is the first five books of Moses. The Prophets, obviously, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the minor prophets means they didn't talk very much. That's the shorter books. So major prophets are the ones who are long-winded. Minor are the ones who are short. So what am I? I don't know. <laughs> A false major prophet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyways, I know it. It's fun. But... As they read from the prophets in the synagogue, they said, hey, do you have anything to say? Do you have anything to encourage the body? And there's this interaction between uh, the people and God. And this is kind of a picture of the New Testament a little bit, I think, that it's not just about 
uh, Matt sitting here and, and reading the scriptures to you, although that is what the, the, uh, the Bible really heavily influences. We talked about that in Timothy and some other places. But it's about you using your giftings and the things God's called upon you. And that's why when we pray, I think it's important uh, to say, hey, what's going on? Do you have a praise? Do you have a word from the Lord? Uh, does anybody want to pray and involving people in, in the exhortation? And really, this takes, group, this takes hold in places like small groups and Wednesday night services a lot. In bigger settings, it's very hard to do that. And Paul lays down in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 some, um, some heavy rules about how that's supposed to go so that people are edified during that time. But standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and said to them, Men of Israel and Gentiles who worship God. Now, some of, you, some of your Bibles say, you who fear God. That's that word God-fear again. And we read from Josephus and other historians that that is probably uh, a reference to Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And so they've been circumcised, and now they follow all those laws, kind of like Cornelius, although, um, you know, it's just, it just a group of people. So, hey, listen to you men of Israel and you converts. Hey, listen to me. Verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers, and he made people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Really quickly. Paul's going to start to give these people a history lesson in their own history. And so if you are not familiar with the Bible, this is really good because he just kind of gives a brief uh, outline of the Old Testament. Great. Thank you, Paul. And so he starts and he says, hey, listen to me, everybody. Verse 17, the God of the people of Israel, he chose our fathers and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Those of you who followed us with Genesis, we saw that that was all about a nation being born, and they got put into captivity. They got put into Egypt, remember? And then it, they were there for 400 years. And then God, it says, with, well, with mighty power, he led them out of that country. Remember the 10 plagues and all those things? And he, led, he parted the Red Sea. They came out. And so these people who are Jewish are tracking with their history. It's as if he just started a, a brief American history overview. And everybody's going, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah, that's right. Right? Verse 18 says, he endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. Remember, they wandered for 40 years in the desert. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, and he gave their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. Really quickly, as you read an American history book, what perspective is it written from? What is Paul doing here? Now, were these people actually in captivity? Yeah. Did they have to walk out of captivity? Did they have to go do things? Were they the ones wandering around in the earth for 40 years? Right. But who's at work? Who's doing all these things? Look at all the things God is doing. God chose them, He made them prosper in Egypt. Did they work? Yeah. Did they multiply? Yes, they did. Did they have families, all that stuff? Yes, but it was God who was at work. And through the mighty power, he led them out. Did they walk out? Yes, under their own power. But who was it that was leading them? Who was it then that caused the circumstances to allow them to happen? God. How many times is God repeated in this verse, in, these, in this section here? Think about your own life. Think about your own personal history. Think about the circumstances you are going through, the hard times, the oppression, the misery, the depression. 
and yet you stand, you sit here this morning. Who's leading you? Who's guiding you? Who is there? God. And Paul is letting them know God is at work in history. He is intervening in men and women's lives. He is guiding circumstance, providence, the providence of God working with the free will of men. God is at work to bring his plan about in your life, in my life, in this church. And he's reminding them of this. Praise the Lord. And now this took about 450 years. That's a long time. How many of you like to wait 450 years for God's plan to come about? Oh, boy. I'm upset by a month or something. Actually, a couple days. You know, I mean, you start praying, God help, and then all of a sudden it's like, where are you? You're gone. Don't worry, I've got a big plan and you're a part of it and I'm working on it. Put your eyes on me. Have I not shown that I love you? Have I not shown that I've been faithful, that I will not provide for you in the wilderness, that I'll even endure with you? I'm here. I love you. I've not abandoned you. But I have a greater plan than your pleasure. I have a greater plan than you being healthy and happy. I have a greater plan than you having the American dream, the American lie. I have a kingdom that I am building, and it is eternal. And when it is shaken, it will not be destroyed like this place that we live, like the world that we live on. But it will be eternal. And our hearts are to be set on that. And how does he train us in this? How does he train us to be eyes set on the eternal prize when our bodies grow weak, when times go hard, when there's suffering in our lives? Where else do we look? We can look into ourselves in in collapse or complain in the wilderness for 40 years and not enjoy the promises of God, or we can look to God in these circumstances and these difficult times and say, you are my hope. You are my hope. Though you slay me, all these verses that we see, may God drill that into our hearts that it's not just about here and now, but yes, he does intervene in the here and now. And our purpose in life is to connect with his plan, his vision, what he wants to do. Look at the life of Jesus. He died at 30-something. The person we just read, Be Thou My Vision, she died at 42. Life crippled, hurting all the time. But through her pain was focused on the Lord. Not be that my vision, it was the other one. That was Fanny Crosby, he was blind. Excuse me. It was uh, take my life and let it be. Not a might will I withhold. And she had, you know, she at the end of her life, she said, man, there's this chest that's amazing and it has all these ornaments in it. I'm going to give it away just that people will be blessed. And she just was a giver. It was just amazing what God did through suffering in her life. But here he is recalling this history from God's perspective. Took 450 years, verse 20.5. After this, God gave them judges. Remember after he pulled them out of the land through Joshua, there were judges. And what was the main theme in judges? 
They did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they would just forget God and they would let the culture dictate how they lived. They let the culture dictate how they lived and they forgot God. They forgot about Him. They forgot to worship Him. They forgot to put Him first and all these things. And so they just let the culture permeate their hearts and they were worshiping Baal. And then as the consequence of that started to happen out in their lives, to play out in their lives, in their community, and all these things. They cried out to God, and when they cried out to God, what did God do? He sent deliverers, and they would come and do amazing things on their behalf. Oh, God's grace when we've blown it. And then everything would be good again, and what would happen? They'd rejoice in the Lord for 10 minutes, and then they'd click, (laughs) you know, zone out, and they forgot about the Lord. Oh, everything's going well, so we're just going to forget about him. And this is the pattern over and over and over and over. And judges, everything was, do, everything was done what was right in their eyes instead of what pleased the Lord. How many of us are living like that? You know, I don't, you know, whatever that guy says, whatever, you know, he's critical, whatever, you know, or whatever these excuses we can come up with. I don't want to go to church, they're a bunch of hypocrites, or, you know, I mean, all the stuff we can start to do, and it's actually just a justification to live the way we want to live. Anyone? I get like that. God, forgive me. So there were these judges. This is when Ruth was around, that time of, that time of the Bible. And so you read uh, the first five books about making the nation. Then you read Joshua, which is them going into the land, the promised land. And then you read Judges, what happens after that. And then we get into First, Second Samuel and Kings and stuff like that. And it says... Uh, Verse 21, then the people asked for a king, and they gave the, the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, right? Of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was a foot taller than everybody else. And they looked at him strictly at that, and that they said, Oh yeah, he's our guy. Look at the outward appearance. His dad is highly praised. He's a really great guy within our tribes here. He's He's, 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 he's greatly connected. And his son, look at his son. Oh, yeah, that's the one we want. You know? And God gave him that. They wanted to be like the other nations around him. They didn't want to be ruled by God. They wanted to have, be ruled by man. And so they go ahead and they give him this guy, Saul. And if you remember what happens with Saul, he was told to go eradicate the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a horrible, vicious people. He was told to go eradicate them. That's a discussion for another day. And so he goes out and he eradicates all of them, except for he keeps the best of the livestock and he brings King Agag back with him. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 7, I think, is the story, the prophet Samuel, he comes up to him and and says, hey, and, and what is King Saul says, hey, praise the Lord, everybody. You know, he gives one of those, how you doing? Those church welcomes. I'm doing great. Praise the Lord, bud. He goes, hey, uh, I thought I told you to go and didn't the Lord just tell you to go uh, eradicate all those people? To totally get rid of all of it, including all their livestock, everything? Why? He goes, yeah, I killed everything because everything's good. Well, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in the rams in my ear? What did he say? 
Oh, well, I kept those back. The best is sacrifice to the Lord. Excuses, right? That, that's what I did. And then Samuel goes, man, you're in trouble. And then the truth comes out. Saul goes, you know what? I actually, I, I brought him back to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Wait a second. The Lord who's God? The Lord your God. It wasn't a personal. He was just functioning in a position of spiritual leadership. But it wasn't a personal relationship with the Lord. He didn't have the fear of the Lord in his heart. Whose fear did he have in his heart? It said that he feared the men he was with and he wanted to appease them. And that's why he disobeyed God and he gave them the sheep. And he kept King Agag to bring back so everybody would see what he had done and give him praise. He feared what men would think. And how many of us struggle that every day? In sharing the Lord, how many of us go, yeah, partial obedience, God. In living our lives. And Amalekites are a type of sin in Scripture. God wants to totally eradicate sin, not leave leftovers or the best of or the things that you just enjoy. He wants to eradicate it from our lives. Totally gone. Do you know at the end of Saul's life who, whose hand killed him? An Amalekite. It always comes back to bite. He feared men and did not obey the Lord. And so verse 22 says, after removing Saul... This is the Lord who removed Saul. Notice he's doing these things. He made David their king. And he testified concerning him. I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart. What makes him a man after God's own heart? Keep reading. He will do everything I want him to do. He does what God wants him to do. Was David perfect? No, he wasn't. Did he make major mistakes, of course, and God dealt heavily with him as a leader? We talked about this. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. This is my commandments, that you love one another. You know, if you, First John, if you say that you have the love of God in you and you see someone hurting and you do nothing about it, it's a lie. And so the proof that we are God's is in what we do. This is what James's thrust was in the book of James. Faith without works is dead. Works is the proof that there is faith. By a tree, you will know it by its fruit, right? What kind of fruit do we have in our fellowship? What kind of fruit do I have in my marriage? What kind of fruit do we have in our lives? And if you are struggling with that and go, gosh, man, I'm fruitless, or I, you know, I'm just a Sunday Christian, or this is not the life. There has to be a, a reconciliation of that. This is where we throw ourselves at the cross of Christ and say, oh God, forgive me, I need grace and mercy. Change me, creating me a clean heart like David when he blew it, right? Psalm 51, renew a right spirit in me. And some of you this morning go, I don't even have the desire to do any of these things. It's not even on my register. Well, that's why God is a creator, he can create something out of nothing that is not there. And how do you receive that? By faith, you ask. Lord, make me a servant. Lord, make me kind. Make me humble. Lord, make me these things. And not only do you ask for it, now God's going to give you opportunities to do it. And we step out in obedience and faith. 
And that is how that works together. And these are the good works God has called us to walk in. And so David, a man after his own heart, he's repeating this history to these people. And they're tracking with them. Yeah, going all the way through. Yeah, God was with this. God's been leading. God's been doing this stuff. God worked through David. And now they got to David. And now there's going to be a great jump. He's going to jump over all the minor prophets and all the things, you know, the, uh, the time of the rebuilding of the wall when they came back out of captivity and all this stuff. And he's going to jump straight to the point. Verse 23, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought, up, brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Through David, if, and by the way, if you look in the Old Testament, you see books like Ruth. Why is Ruth in there? Well, Ruth is David's great-great-grandmother. It's all connected to Jesus all the way through. And so you get to David, and, and David wants to build a house for the Lord. Remember that story? Because I want to build a house for you, Lord. I want to do something great from you. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him and goes, yeah, go do it, it's all in your heart. And then Nathan goes, takes a nap and comes back, and the Lord speaks to him and says, no, that's not what I said. He can't do it because he's got blood on his hands. Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his tens of thousands. He was a warrior. He was a bloody man. That's not someone who's going to be building my house. And so what happened? He was, said, God, I want to do this for you. And God said, no. He says, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a house for you. This is what I'm going to do for you. On your throne, there will never stop being one who rules from your lineage. And that was the promise. And that was from his seed, Remember the seed of Abraham that was promised? If you follow that genealogy all the way through, it's connecting. This is the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. And that eventual descendant of Jesus, uh, of, of David, is Jesus Christ. And that's why you, when you read in the book of Luke and the read in the book of Matthew, the genealogies, that's connecting the whole thing. This whole thing has been about Jesus the whole time. That is what he's doing. He's connecting their history to the Messiah. That he's actually, he came and he was here. And he came through David just as he had promised. And it was promised. And before the coming of Jesus, and he says it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. That is his title. Messiah. Verse 24, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people. He was the forerunner, the one who came before to get the hearts of the people ready for the Messiah. And he said... Who do you think I am to all the people? Because they're going, this guy's doing miracle. Of, he's an amazing guy. He's got the anointing of the Spirit. Who is this? Do you, and they were starting to think he was the Messiah or the prophet Elijah. And he says, I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And then what would happen is the very next day, Jesus would come on the scene and John the Baptist would see his cousin weird stuff, and he would wake up to the fact, oh my gosh, and what would he declare before everybody? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They had had sacrifices, millions of animals slaughtered that could never take away their sins. There were only a delay, a picture of the one who had come, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was what he woke up. Oh my gosh. Hey, everybody, this is the guy, the one I can't tie his sandals because I'm not worthy. Here he is, Jesus. 
And he is the Lamb of God. When he dies, his, his death will take away the sins of the world. What all these sacrifices and the things we've been doing throughout all our history can never do. And he magnified him before the people. And then verse 26, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us this message of salvation has been sent. And the people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And though they have found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed anyways. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. This is a piece of paper front and back that I have. Sorry, I'm not trying to tote my chargers today. Of prophecies concerning Jesus, concerning his birth, concerning his nature, concerning his ministry, the day that Jesus was crucified, all written 1,000 years, 750 years before he came. And it has the dates they were prophesied, the, the, uh, the uh, scriptures that they were prophesied in the Old Testament, and when they were actually fulfilled. A copy on the back corner of there if you want it. I've, I only printed up like nine or so, but amazing. All, when, when all the things that had been written were fulfilled about him, they put him in the tomb, and he was dead, right? What does it say? Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. The scriptures that this said the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said, you, 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 you destroyed this temple, and I will raise it three, in three days. Father, Son, Holy Spirit raised Jesus Christ. But he raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. Over 500 people were witnesses to his resurrection. And we tell you the good news. That word good news, circle it, that means gospel. That's what it is. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers has, you know, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As it is written, and he starts giving the proof of the resurrection as quoted in the Old Testament. As it is written by the second Psalm, Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have become your father. And the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I, I will give you the holy and sure blessings uh, promised to David. And so we see that heir is for Jesus. And so it is stated elsewhere, verse 35, You will not let your holy ones see decay. And this is David writing these things. In verse 36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died and was buried with his fathers, and his body did decay. This is not talking about David. He's enlightening. He's teaching the people who are there. This is not about David, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay, Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything. You could not be justified from the law of Moses. If you are here this morning, morning thinking that if you go to church enough, if you do enough good things, if you, if you have, at the end of your life, good things outweigh the bad, that that's how you are justified. Justified is a word that you can just say, just as if I'd never sinned, made clean before God. 
If you think that that is how God will accept you, you're wrong. And you will be departed from him forever and ever, for no one is justified by the works of the law, Paul would teach. The law is there to show us that we are sinful. For when it says, do not lie, you realize you're a liar. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? Guilty. Whole world condemned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have broken his perfect law, except for one. Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law. He alone did it all, walked perfectly before the Lord, and then was put on a cross, that perfect sacrifice for you, for me, for those things we have done and will do. And his death was our justification. He died because the wrath of God was put upon him instead of you, instead of me. And the only way that we can be justified, made right with God, which is being saved from the wrath of God, is through faith. What is faith? I believe. There's nothing I could have done. You died in my place. I believe it. I accept it. I don't deserve it. Thank you. And that is the grace of God. For you are not saved by works, but you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is how we stand as a church. That is what we teach. That is the foundation. Now the problem is this church that he's talking to is going to have some problems. And they're going to go back to thinking that they can be justified by the law. And so he writes the book of Galatians to them. And reminds him, no, who's beguiled you? Who's bewitched you that you'd so quickly turn to another gospel? Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is justified. We're closing here. From everything you could not, do, you could not be justified from by the law. And he warns them, verse 40, take care of what the prophets have said that's not happened to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe. And even if someone had told you, Some of you scoff. Don't scoff. Be careful, you'll perish. And as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things next week. And most likely these are a lot of the Gentiles. They're going, what in the world is this? Some of your verses say the Gentiles. How many of you say the Gentile? Yeah, they're trying to deal with, with context there. What does peoples mean? Obviously, if they were Jews, they would say Jews, but it was the people, so what does that mean? You know, so they're trying to calculate what that word means. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God, to continue in the grace of God. And they just did not do that, unfortunately, to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44 On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul, saying uh, what Paul was saying, verse 46. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, and since you rejected it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the reason, and and he goes into this in Romans, but the reason why we have the gospel is because the Jews rejected it. 
but God will one day go back to them and work that together when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They were glad and, the, uh, and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Oh, don't have time to get into predestination right now. That's a fun, that's a fun topic that really, I've, I've, like I said, I've never had a conversation about predestination and all that stuff that's brought someone to Jesus, you know? But God is totally sovereign. Know that. He chooses. At the same time, the Bible teaches we choose him. For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I don't know how that works out. And I doubt anyone with a bunch of letters behind their name knows either. But yet he seeks two truths at the same time. Our responsibility and what he does. Two different views of the same coin, I believe. But know this, salvation did not come from you or me. If it was not for God intervening in our lives, we would not be saved. Amen? <laughs> okay, at the end here, we're almost there. Home, we're on the home stretch. Will I make it in one minute? Yes. They were, and they appoint, okay, verse 49. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. See that? The word of the Lord spreading? The thing that happens after each time they have an encounter, they have opposition, and then the word spreads. Now look at what happens when the word spreads. Verse 50, but, oh no. The Jews incited God-fearing women of high standing. So these are kind of Gentilish people because God's reaching the Gentiles, right? God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. When the word of the Lord spreads in your home, when the word of the Lord spreads in the city, what do you expect to happen? Persecution. Get used to it. They're not going to like you. They're not going to like you interfering in their lives. They want to stay in darkness. Praise God, Jesus didn't care about how we feel, and he just said, I love you anyways. Here's the truth. Come on out. And he worked on our hearts. And we finally said, yeah. Thank you, Lord. That's love. They started persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They kicked them out even so. They shook the dust off their feet. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? If they don't accept you in that house or that town, shake the dust off your feet, and it will be worse for them in judgment than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, that's heavy stuff. In protest against them, they went to Iconium, and so they went further into Galatia. In verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How can you be persecuted, kicked away, rejected by the world, and have joy? That's got to be the Holy Spirit. Amen? What do we need in our church? Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. More of you, less of fear of men, more fear of the Lord in our hearts, more love, more compassion for the world, more truth. Amen? Father, we lift up this day. We thank you for your precious word. We thank you for what you've taught us this morning. I pray that in all these verses and all these things that were said, that you worked into the hearts of your people and are working, those things would build them up, edify them, correct them, exhort them, encourage them back to your throne of grace and into the things you've called them to do, to be impacting our families and our lives by the way we live, by what we say, and by what we do that you alone would receive the glory, Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray this 
In the name of Jesus, amen.